Yay, we have a mic. That's a, that's a win. Uh, well, good morning. I'm so glad to see you guys and all your smiling faces. I know it's only been two months since we did the last semester, but I've missed you guys and I've missed studying the word with you. And I feel very odd being up on the stage. It feels very official. I've got Dave Tooker's headset and Dave Tooker's spot. But let me bring us back to reality. I am not Dave Tooker. I am Amber, and I'm glad to be part of your teaching team if I haven't met you before. And what I want to do, because I know this is part two, there were some that weren't here last semester, is I kind of want to travel with you where we've been, some highlights of last semester, and then kind of cast forward where we're going. But before I do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray too and calm all the nervous energy flowing out of me. So, Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for all these beautiful women. Thank you for inviting us to be here with you. And Lord, I pray that as we dig into the book of Matthew, that you would open our eyes to see the truths that you have for us, that you would open our ears, Father, that we might hear your voice. And Father, would you give us hearts that are willing to respond to you? And Lord Jesus, this time is yours. And so I just give this time to you, Lord. I confess I have nothing of my own. Um, this is all for you. And so I pray that your spirit would flow freely in and through me and that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what I'm going to do is up here is a little outline of kind of where we're going. I'm going to do the overview of the book of Matthew, just some background stuff, author, genre, how it's organized, and then we'll go through the major themes. And as I've been thinking, prepping for this lesson, I was really contemplating the Christmas season that we just came out of. And it's during Advent and Christmas that we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And that wasn't just a one-time past event. It's not a seasonal celebration, but it is a present reality. And it's here that we get to see God with us in the book of Matthew. And I'm here, you're here, because Jesus has invited you to be here. And so I'm just, I just want to say I'm so glad you responded to his invitation because he has something for each and every one of us this, this semester, and he wants us to know him more. And the most important thing we can get at Christmas time or even throughout the whole course of human history is Jesus himself. Christine spoke to that. The, the most important thing we can get out of this study is Jesus himself. We don't want you to walk away with a bunch of fun facts or a head full of really good quotes. We want you to know Jesus more and to love him more and to grow in your worship of him. And Jesus, I mean, we can be students of the word, right? And we can entirely miss Jesus. That is a very scary thought. And Jesus speaks to that in John 5, 39, when he's talking to the Jewish leaders, when he says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet, you refuse to come to me and receive this life. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we can find some commonality with the Jews in that. We can study a whole lot and know a, lot, a whole lot and not know Jesus deeper. And so they knew it. They knew all the prophecies. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, they missed it, and they continued to miss it. And it's predominantly to the Jews that, Matthew, that the book of Matthew is written. And they are not the only audience, but they are the main audience. And so I've given you the audience, hint, hint. And so we're going to walk through the other points. This book of Matthew is written by Matthew. And what do we know about him? 
We know that he was a former tax collector for Rome. He was also a Jew. And so his people would have considered him a sellout and a traitor. Matthew is seemingly one of the last people that we would think Jesus would call to follow him. But in Matthew 9, 9, we see Jesus extend that invitation, come and follow me, and Matthew does. And he is forever changed, and he begins to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And his former job implies that he would be a very good record keeper, which is highly convenient and ideal, because in this book, he takes great care to convince the audience that Jesus is who he is, that he's the promised Messiah that they'd been looking for, and he's convincing us of the significance of the kingdom. And it's estimated that this book was written between 60 and 65 AD. Next, we're gonna look at the genre of the book. It is important to know the genre of the book because it helps us as students know how to read the book and how to interpret what it's saying. And there are multiple right answers. Last year, Belinda gave a pop quiz. I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> it's a nonfiction. It is a historical narrative. And it is biographical in nature. It is also, it contains parables and discourses, which means teachings. But there's one specific word that I want to hone in on, and that's gospel. That is a certain kind of genre that is only found in the New Testament. And we have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And often the stories that you're going to encounter in these Gospels will overlap, but they will also differ. And the Gospels can also have different audiences and different themes. But the one thing that they all have in common is that they are a record of Jesus' Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And the word Gospel means good news. And in the very first chapter of Matthew, we receive the good news of Jesus. When you read the Bible, it's one cohesive story. It is not 66 books randomly thrown together. And that story is called the story of redemption. It's God's story. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God has been unfolding his plan. And what is his plan? You can answer that one. What is his plan? Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no redemption. And so truly, the whole story is about his son, Jesus, and he loves revealing his son to you because we have a personal, relational, intimate God that wants you to know him, and he wants you to know his son. And God is a masterful storyteller, and so he weaves all of scripture to that end. And so we can get excited about the book of Matthew because the very son that God wants us to know has arrived, and God is inviting us to behold him. This is my beloved son who brings me great joy, Matthew 3:17. And Matthew, in that very first verse, he, said, he stakes the claim that the prophesied Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for is here. And that verse reads, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so I'm going to break that down for you, what he's claiming in that very first sentence. Jesus means Savior. Then he calls him Messiah. Some of your translations will say Christ. That means the anointed one. And then he calls him the son of David. Jesus is the seed that will endure to the end that was promised to David. And then he takes it a step further back and he calls him the son of Abraham. Jesus is the royal line that was promised to Abraham. 
And that should have been great news for the Jews, not just good news, but great news. They knew the Old Testament, they knew the prophecies, but they didn't get it. In fact, Matthew references Old Testament prophecies about 60 times in this book. They're not all directly about Jesus, but there's multiple prophecies, but over 60 times, I think Christine calculated it last semester, it's like one and a half times per page, or, or per chapter, I don't remember what it was, but it was a lot. Um, it would be easy to assume that since he started with the genealogy that it's chronological, but it is not. It is actually organized based on five big blocks of teaching, and many theologians consider those five big blocks to mirror the five books that Moses wrote, kind of signaling that Jesus is the new and better Moses. And so last semester, we covered the first three blocks of teaching, and I, I'm going to have them up here for you. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount. These kind of titles underneath are ones that we gave them, so I'm going to keep those consistent um, as we go along. So Sermon on the Mount is kind of part one of announcement of the kingdom. This was considered to be Jesus's inaugural address. In it, he proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is here, it is at hand, and we found that in chapters five through seven. The next one is the sending of the disciples in chapter 10. It was the announcement of the kingdom part two. This was missional teaching. The kingdom of heaven would be brought through the disciples. And Christine used a great quote last semester that I'm gonna give to you because it captures kind of the, the spirit of this so well. And it's the disciples of Jesus bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. And then we finalized our semester with the parables of Jesus in chapter 13. And throughout that, he's giving a description of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, over and over and over, giving them descriptions. And then the fourth block of teaching that we're going to come to is the upside down kingdom. And that's in chapters 14 through 20. That's where we're going to be picking back up this semester. And then we're also going to get the last big block in chapters 24 through 25, which is called the last day's teaching, or also known as the Olivet Discourse. In it, Jesus gives final instructions. We know that when someone is about to die, they give their loved ones their final words. And Jesus does that here. But that's all I'm going to say about that because I don't want to give any more spoilers away. And so Matthew expertly weaves between that teaching and the narrative back and forth. And you'll notice when a block of teaching is done, because there will be a summary statement that creates a seam at the end, such as when Jesus had finished saying these things. And then because of its deliberate and direct ties to the Old Testament and the way it's orderly arranged, they've said that the Gospel of Matthew is the most commonly used gospel in the early church. And in addition to the big blocks of teaching that we will encounter, Matthew also has some very important themes that he wants us to pay attention to. Put those up for you. I'm, I'm spreading them out. This is not the only two. That way you can see them better. Um, the first one is the kingdom of heaven. This is a huge theme. It played out last semester. It's going to continue to play out this semester. That phrase has been used 32 times in this book alone. And that means that it's super duper important because whenever there is repetition, that is God calling your attention to something because he wants you to pay attention to it and he wants to drive it home. And in the other gospels, you might notice it is called the kingdom of God. It means the same thing. And this kingdom of heaven is not just a future hope. 
It is also a present reality. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen of this kingdom. And like the disciples before us, we get to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. All of this kingdom of heaven language really sets the tone for the whole rest of the New Testament because all throughout the rest of the New Testament, you're gonna be learning what it's like to be a citizen of that kingdom. It has different values and different culture, different practices and different principles. It, is, it looks completely different from the world that we see today. And because of those differences, it's called an upside down kingdom. And it's unlike anything that we ever experience, it completely upends every way that we measure importance and success and identity and purpose and so on. Anything that the world tries to press on you today, it flips that up on its head. And it did it for Jesus's audience back then too. They had an idea of what it meant to be part of this kingdom. And they thought that it was one of, of political and military might. And so we're gonna continue to flesh that out in these last 15 chapters of Matthew. The next theme that you'll see is conflict, conflict between people and Jesus, and also a clash of the kingdoms, the kingdoms of earth versus the kingdom of heaven. We've got the third one, which is promises fulfilled. Over and over and over again, Matthew takes great care and attention to detail to show you that he, that Jesus is the promised Messiah that he is fully divine and fully human, and he is the fulfillment of all the law and prophets. Your God is a promise keeper. Do you know that? Like, do you really know that? Because in Genesis 3.15, God said, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That offspring that God is talking about in Genesis is here. That's the offspring, Jesus. God has kept his promise. And because of Matthew's special attention to confirming the identity of Jesus, this gospel has also been referred to as a gospel of identity. This world, as many of you will know, is bombarded with identity confusion. And here we get a picture of identity clarity not just who Jesus is, but who we are as well. We, we too ask ourselves the same basic questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And what am I doing here? And every single day we carry around our identity, our past and our purpose. And Matthew kind of poses some implied questions that are clarifying to our questions. Are you in Christ or are you not? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or are you not? Because if you are, every single day you carry around Jesus with you and his strength, his purpose, and his power every single day. You and me, every single woman in this room, I don't know if you remember this from last semester, but Jesus says we have a greater privilege and position than the men that came before us, the ones that pointed us to Christ, because they had an incomplete picture of the Messiah. And that's kind of hard to wrap our heads around, but we, we get to herald the crucified and resurrected king. They didn't get that. 
And so we, we spend a lot of time trying to establish how great we are, but Jesus has already said that we're great. And so we get to rejoice in our identity and position in Jesus. Another theme that really played out, and we're going to continue to see this, is, and this is a phrase that Belinda coined, I wish I did, but she did, and so I'm going to put that up there for you as well. The good news of Jesus demands a response. Sometimes that response is belief and awe and wonder. Other times it's doubt, maybe even complacency. And worse, sometimes it's rejection and hatred and opposition. And throughout that first half of Matthew, we got to see um, a whole mixed bag of characters and their responses to Jesus. We saw the shepherds and the wise men at his birth who came and worshiped Jesus. Yet on the flip side, we had King Herod who was hunting him down and trying to murder him as a baby. We also saw John the Baptist who, whose whole task in life was to herald the coming of King Jesus. He also baptized Jesus and then later said, I must decrease so that he can increase. And then we're going to see some other groups, too, the disciples, the religious people, the crowds, all how they're responding to Jesus. We'll see those responses play out this next semester as well. And then as we journey through the second half, as they're responding to Jesus, really what they're grappling with is the question, who is this Jesus? And that really is the same question for all of us today. And last semester, um, this is the last theme, we looked at pictures or portraits of Jesus and his different character attributes. That's kind of how we labeled it. And so we're going to carry that through this semester as well. And I have pulled some different depictions that artists, some are famous artists, some are I don't know, and you may or may not like them, but I wanted to engage your senses and help your mind just kind of picture Jesus as these different um, portraits, if you will. Um, this is not an exhaustive lift list, so you're probably going to notice that I didn't cover a whole lot because he is a never-ending well. He is multifaceted, and he has, I mean, he's just, the depth of who he is is, we, we can't say it all, right? And so, please don't hate me for only listing like eight. <laughs> um, but anyway, the first one is the infant king. We saw Jesus revealed as the infant king, a needy, dependent baby born in tumultuous circumstances. He was, it was quite different from the conquering warrior king that the Jews had been expecting. He was seemingly insignificant. He was just a small, tiny baby that was conceived to unwed parents and his lineage had a whole lot of unsavory characters. There was no pomp, there was no pageantry, and yet at his birth, he was declared the king of the Jews. And unlike the kings of this earth, Jesus did not inherit the throne. It has always been his. He is the rightful king, the only true king, and in the pages of history given to us in the Bible, the coming of this king had been heralded for, for thousands of years. And John the Baptist had been heralding him in the opening chapters of Matthew. And when they came face to face in Matthew, we get to see Jesus revealed as the inaugurated king, which is on the other side. He was presented to Israel at his baptism. And it was there that God had said, this is my beloved son who brings me great joy. 
And then after his presentation, we journeyed with Jesus as he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the, by the enemy. And he completed that successfully, I might add. And, and then after that, we walked through that first block of teaching. If you remember from the previous slide, it was the Sermon on the Mount that was considered his inaugural address. We also got to see him as an invitational king, one that called his disciples to come and follow him. And he's still making that invitation today to all of us. Jesus reveals himself as a missional king. He went around preaching and teaching and healing and everywhere he went, everywhere that he interacted with somebody, he was about the father's business, bringing what the father had to say and doing the father's will on this earth. We also got to see Jesus revealed as the Son of Man. I do not have a picture for that one. That was a little bit harder to conceptualize in my brain. But this is a designation that Jesus exclusively used for himself. In fact, it's used about 78 times in the Gospels. All along throughout our study, like I was saying, Matthew has taken great care to show us that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. And by using this title, Jesus himself is confirming it. The phrasing emphasizes Jesus' humanity because we could all be considered sons of man, but it also emphasizes his divinity. If you were to look back and read Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel's having a vision, we would learn that this is both prophetic and a messianic designation. And so throughout the book of Matthew, we see Jesus using that title as he interacts with, with the Pharisees and with other people. And he's showing them over and over and over again that the Son of Man is Lord over creation, over the law, over Sabbath, and over salvation. And by using this name, Jesus identifies with the people that he came to save. And he presents himself as the perfect being who fulfilled the law perfectly. He also uses this designation to point forward to when he defeats the beast and his exaltation and rule. And in the final chapters of Matthew, we're gonna see him talk about being the son of man again, specifically the one that I'm looking forward to is when he's being questioned, he calls himself the son of man to confirm that he is the Messiah. And he's the coming judge. In addition to the son of man, we're gonna see other pictures, which I do have. Um, We're gonna see him as the rejected king the one who is opposed and hated. We're going to see him as the crucified king, the one who did all the work on the cross for our salvation. We're also going to see him as the resurrected king. That just brings great joy, right, when you see that picture, knowing that there's an empty tomb. And then the last one, we're going to see him as the coming king, the one who's been promised to return to us. And so I've given you a lot of information. And so um, I'm just going to recap real quick of where we are going. You're going to see the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like to be citizens in that kingdom. You are going to, we collectively, not just you, we, me, we're going to have to wrestle with the reality of the demands of that kingdom. Discipleship is costly. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. And as disciples, we're going to look at the principles and the practices of that kingdom and what it looks like to live out the call and the mission of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of 
in the kingdoms of this earth are at odds with one another. And so to humble ourselves under the authority of King Jesus means that we're going to humble ourselves under a kingdom that not only challenges us, but changes us from the inside out. We're also going to see more promises fulfilled. Again, Matthew makes over 60 references to these prophecies. It's exciting. We have a promise-keeping God. I I hope that as you watch the promises kind of come to fruition throughout these, that you're filled with great joy and great hope. Would you take some time to consider what promises you're looking forward to? One example, and it may seem a little trivial, but I don't know, a lot of you don't know my story, but I'm 41, and I've had RA for the last 12 years, and I've had two full knee replacements. So for me, the promise I'm looking forward to is my new body. I am very excited about that, but I'm also excited about the kingdom to come where there's no pain, there's no suffering, and there's no sickness. So what promises to come are you looking forward to, or even that you may be clinging to? We're going to see the portraits of King Jesus, like I said, the rejected king, the crucified king, the, the resurrected king, and the coming king. And by looking at these portraits. We're going to wrestle with the question also of who is this Jesus? And as we contemplate what that means for us in our lives, I want to invite you to something. It was an invitation that was extended last semester, and it is to behold Jesus. To behold means to see, know, experience, and pay attention. I'm going to repeat that for you for my note takers. It means to see, know, experience, and pay attention. We do not want to merely just glance at Jesus. We want to gaze at him with intent. I think Belinda coined this one too, but to behold is to be roused out of our preoccupied existence to experience the wonder of God's plan through Jesus. If the most important thing that we can get out of the study is Jesus himself, then we must behold him. Will you respond to that invitation today? Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for the many ways that you reveal yourself through the pages of scripture, for the beautiful pictures of your character and your attributes of your majesty. Lord, thank you for for what you've done. It is a gift. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place that we would continue to set our eyes upon you, that we would behold your face. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.